John 2:12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for this portion of your holy, inspired, and errant word. We pray that it would bring us life this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school many, many years ago, I attended a huge youth group with a very skilled, very loud band. And one evening at youth group, uh, we sang these lyrics. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up to the gates of hell, but I won't back down. No, I'll stand my ground, won't be turned around, and I'll keep this world from dragging me down, gonna stand my ground, and I won't back down. Then the chorus. Hey, baby. You know this song? There ain't no easy way out. Okay, hey, I will stand my ground, and I won't back down. Okay, who sings that song? Anyone know? Tom Petty. It's a great song. But the question is, why were we singing that song at youth group? (laughs) I have no clue, which raises all kinds of questions. What is worship? What should we sing at worship? How much does God care about worship? I've looked back on that night many, many times and thought, (laughs) I wonder what God thought as we were singing that song at Breakaway Youth Ministry. And it raises, I think, a really, really foundational question, and that is simply this. Does God care about how you and I worship. Does he care? And the answer is a resounding yes. 
How do we know? Because of the episode that unfolds in John 2, 12 to 25. There we see that Jesus is incredibly zealous for God-honoring worship. The question is, do we share his zeal for God-honoring worship? Well, how do we know in this episode of John 2 that Jesus is zealous for God-honoring worship? Well, we know for at least two reasons. First, we see in this episode that Jesus is angered by false worship. And second, we see that Jesus is essential for true worship. Well, let's proceed along those two lines this morning. First, Jesus is angered by false worship. Well, how do we know he's angry? He resorts to violence. Look with me at John 2.12. After this, that is after the wedding feast in Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish Passover commemorated Israel's spectacular deliverance by God from Egyptian bondage 1,500 years before Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth. And every year, the Jews would go to Jerusalem to celebrate this incredible act of deliverance. Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem and to the temple to celebrate this act of deliverance? Because Jesus cared about worship. Verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And I have a picture of the temple I want to show you. This is Herod's temple. This temple uh, reconstruction began at about 20 B.C., and it took decades to build. Now, you can, hopefully you can see some of the details, details to understand this. But um, this is the main complex right here, and this wall right here, is called the Wall of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles could not go past this point in the temple without getting in significant trouble. So they had to worship out here uh, in the outer courts of the temple. And we'll come back to why that's important in a moment. So temple worship involved the sacrifice of animals. But the problem was is that people came from all over the Roman Empire to worship at Passover once a year, so they couldn't bring their animals with them, and so most of them bought animals outside the temple to sacrifice inside the temple. Now, why were animals sacrificed? Because those dead animals reminded Israel that someone had to die for sins to be forgiven because God is just. Furthermore, all the Jewish males had to pay a temple tax in the Jewish coinage, so there were money changers everywhere to, to make sure that they had the proper currency to pay this temple tax. Both these services were good and useful services that really served the Israelites as they worshiped Yahweh. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he, that is Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. As Jesus walked through the court of the Gentiles, he looked to his right, and he saw merchants in the court of the Gentiles selling animals. He looked to his left, and he saw money changers in the court 
of the Gentiles. How dare they apply in their trade? And as Jesus walked through the, the court of the Gentiles, his blood pressure rose a little bit. Sweat formed on his forehead. He clenched his fists, and he thought, what in the world are they thinking? Don't they care about the honor of God? He keeps walking. Finally, he can't take it anymore. He looks over, and he sees a couple ropes. He goes and grabs them, binds them together, turns them into a whip. And then he walks towards a money changer's table with a stern look on his face and a, de a determined gait. And he looks at the money changer and he says, what in the world are you doing in here? And he reaches down and he grabs the table and he flips it over. And money flies everywhere. And then he cracks his whip and the money changer screams. And then he walks to the next table, and the next table, and the next table, and he begins to kick these tables over and roll them over. And everyone is yelling and screaming. There's animals running everywhere, money on the floor, people just trying to avoid the crack of Jesus' whip. Everyone stops what they're doing and looks at this guy named Jesus because he's going postal. He's angry. He's violent, and everyone has to get out of the way. They're going to experience the crack of the whip. Then Jesus finally yells, leave this place. How dare you turn my father's house into a house of trade? The Lamb of God was a lion. He was angry. One scholar says, he was indignant and angry, and it was a burning, white, hot anger. Yes, it is possible to experience righteous anger. You rarely experience it. Our anger is mostly sinful. But in this moment, Jesus was demonstrating a righteous anger. He was zealous for the worship of God, which was being tarnished. Yes, God gets angry. So in the Lord of the Rings, the Ents are a very old, very powerful species of trees that walk and talk. They're very, very strong. They're very, very wise. And they live deep in the forests. And at one point in these great stories, I forget which hobbit it is, maybe it's Sam, no, it's uh, one of the hobbits, Pippin maybe, maybe it's Pippin. Pippin finds himself in the company of the Ents, and he tells them, do you guys realize that Sauron, Saruman, <laughs> Saruman is destroying the forests of Middle-earth? He's committing genocide against your people. He's tearing down trees. Don't you care? And the ants hear this news. But the ants are very, very slow to anger. So they deliberate for several days as Pippin sits there, totally frustrated, thinking, why aren't they acting? They're just talking 
and thinking and strategizing. They're very patient and they're very slow to anger. But eventually, the ants decide to act and look out. Because when the ants react, it's with great violence. And the ants march to Saruman's fortress, and they tear it down brick by brick. The ants are very slow to anger, but when they get angry, look out, Middle Earth. God is incredibly slow to anger. He's incredibly patient, meek, kind, and gentle. But when God gets angry, it often ends up in violence, like in this story. Well, the question is, how or why is Jesus angry? We know that he's angry, and his anger demonstrates itself in violence, but why in the world is Jesus so worked up? Why is he so angry? For crying out loud. Because people are distracted from worship. That's why he's angry. Look at verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quotation from Psalm 69.9 where David was zealous for protecting the honor of God in the temple and Jesus, the great, 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 great grandson of David is fulfilling this prophecy about himself given to David. Now, most scholars agree that Jesus clears the temple twice. At the beginning of his ministry, as recorded here in John, and then three years later, at the end of his ministry, as recorded in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. When Jesus cleanses the temple a second time, he specifically mentions that he is upset because there is all kinds of of dishonesty and corruption and and extortion taking place in the temple. He calls... He says the temple has become a den of robbers, Mark eleven seventeen. But in John's account of the temple cleansing, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus says nothing about financial corruption. Instead, he focuses on the place. He says, do not make my father's house, the temple, a house of trade. One scholar says this, the play on house makes the place, not the activity, the focus of attention. Said another way, Jesus does not condemn the the merchants for greed or corruption or extortion. He condemns the merchants because they have the gall to set up shop in the court of the Gentiles, which is distracting the Gentiles from the worship of Yahweh. This is the only place the Gentiles can go to worship the living God. And they can't worship because people have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. And imagine being a Gentile in the first century. This is the only place you can go on planet Earth to worship Yahweh. 
And you can't because of all the animals being sold and the money changers making a racket. And Jesus sees this and he is angry because he's zealous for undistracted, God-honoring worship. That's the issue in John 2. Well, the people are zealous for a variety of causes. Many people are zealous for making tons of money. And so, they spend years and years and years getting advanced degrees. They work 70 hours a week. They're constantly hustling, trying to make more money. Other people are zealous for health and having just the right body. And so they're constantly watching YouTube videos on how to eat healthy, how to live healthy. They're reading books on health. They spend hours every day at the club. They get up early to go and work out. They only eat kale and broccoli. They are zealous for health. Others are zealous for their hobbies, golf, underwater basket weaving, thrifting, I don't know what your hobbies are, but many of us are zealous for our hobbies. All we think about and care about are our hobbies. I know some boys that are age 8 and 11 who are zealous for video games. All they talk about, think about, and dream about is playing Super Smash Brothers Brawl or Lord of the Rings Conquest. I know these boys very, very well. What are we zealous for? Jesus was zealous for worship. That zeal consumed him, which raises the obvious question. Are we zealous for worship? We're called to imitate Jesus. Are we zealous for worship? Now, the context of our passage is temple worship, but after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ becomes the body of Christ and is the house of God. Do we love gathering with the saints on the Lord's day in the house of God for worship? What does it look like to be zealous for worship? It starts with showing up on Sundays. Sadly, many Christians today treat the Sunday gathering as kind of an optional nice thing to do if I have time. I've met so many Christians recently in the last couple of months who say, I love Jesus, but I don't go to church. Listen to the words of Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Meeting together in Hebrews means meeting together on the Lord's day with the body of Christ for worship. The author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us, do not neglect to meet together. How can we say we love Christ when we don't love what Christ loves? 
He loves his bride, the church. How can we say we love Christ when we refuse to want to be with his bride, the church? How can we say we love Christ, the head of the church, when we don't want to be with his body, the members of the church? Theologian Kevin DeYoung invented a word called decorpulation. I love it when theologians invent words. And this word is communicating a very, very simple concept. To corpulate something is to cut something off. And he basically says what a lot of Christians do is they cut off the head of Christ from the body of Christ, which is kind of a graphic, gross thing to do. I mean, imagine this corpse cutting off the head, taking the bloody head, and ignoring the body. Kevin Young is saying a lot of Christians want the head of Christ, but not the body of Christ. You can't separate the two. (laughs) The head's connected to the body. Scripture exhorts us to gather with the saints on the Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, to sing, to fellowship, to listen to preaching, and to celebrate the sacraments. What would Jesus do if he was alive today in Spokane, Washington? He would go to church every Lord's Day. I guarantee it. Why? Because he died for his bride. That's how much he loves the church. Now, are there times to miss? Sure there are. But maybe a couple times a year. If we love Jesus, we'll love the things that Jesus loves. And he loves the gathered church. Let me ask another question. Jesus was zealous for undistracted worship. Are we? Do we share that zeal with Jesus? Remember, the issue in our passage was undistracted worship. Now, what can you and I do to promote undistracted worship here at GCF? I'm going to get a little personal here for a moment. It probably means a variety of things. It probably means showing up on time. Because when you walk in late... Everyone you sit around is distracted. It probably means minimizing getting up and moving around during the sermon at a minimum. Because when you do that, everyone is distracted from hearing God's voice. It probably means when your kids are screaming bloody murder (laughs) to take them out for a moment. Now, I love hearing screaming kids in our church for a few seconds. Because it means the next generation is here, and we want them here. We're excited about that. But parents, if your kid just keeps going on and on and on and on, take them out. Don't, like, take them out, but (laughs) take them out there. Parents. Train your kids to go to the bathroom before and after church. I have a child. Every evening at dinner, he says, Dad, I have to go to the bathroom. And I say to this child, child, no. Go before or after dinner. But I'm going to wet my pants. Wet your pants. You'll learn a lesson. 
Don't do that, parents. But train your kids, all joking aside, to use the bathroom before and after church. Because when your kid gets up and moves around a bunch, everyone's distracted. Now, I, there's so much grace here. Like, I, I'm, I'm the father of five. I'm sure my kids screamed during church and went to the bathroom too much during church and moved around. I get it. I get it. But just do your best. Do your best to manage your children and keep them from distracting others because God cares about undistracted worship. You must remember, the church of Jesus Christ is not a concert hall, a lecture hall, or a movie theater. The church is the holy assembly of the resurrected and reigning king. When we gather, we are gathered around the risen Christ in the presence of God Almighty to sing his praises and to hear from him. Do your best to minimize distractions. And again, there's tons of grace in this area. Let me ask one more question. Does your Jesus get angry? Yes, Jesus is meek and lowly and gentle and mild. And you should all read the book that we gave you, Gentle and Lowly. Because Jesus is gentle and lowly beyond anything we can imagine. But he's so much more than that. And nowadays, so many people think of Jesus as nice. He's nice. And niceness becomes the standard of morality. I'll never upset anyone. He loves and accepts everyone and all types of behaviors regardless He's often portrayed as weak and effeminate. He's the kind of guy who would rather knit sweaters than play tackle football or be an army ranger. If this is the Jesus you worship, you are worshiping an idol, a false god, a god made in our culture's image. According to Scripture, Jesus is both the lamb and the lion. Certain things angered him, and certain things still anger him. And someday, he'll return to judge the nations. And we read about this in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. This Jesus I'm about to read, read about is not very nice. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not a nice Jesus. 
This is Jesus, the risen and reigning king, coming in glory to pour out wrath on all of God's enemies. Do you worship this Jesus? This is the Jesus of sacred scripture. And oh, by the way, he is overflowing with love and grace and mercy to all those who repent of their sins and trust him. Yes, he's gentle and lowly, but he's also a God of anger and violence. Are you ready to meet the risen Christ? If you're not a Christian, trust me, you do not want to meet the risen Christ. Is there any hope? Yes. And that brings us to the second point. First, Jesus is angered by false worship. But second, Jesus is essential for true worship. Well, what makes Jesus essential for true worship? A few things. Jesus' identity makes him the place of true worship. I'll say it again. Jesus' identity makes him the place of true worship. John 2, 18 to 21. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? All these violent things in the temple, cracking the whip, turning the tables over. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In these Astonishing verses, Jesus makes an incredibly amazing claim. Did you catch it? Jesus claims to be the very embodiment of the temple. And in case we missed the point, verse 21 spells it out for us. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What an incredible claim. Now, To understand this claim, you have to understand a little bit about the history of the temple in Israel's worship. Going back to roughly 1500 BC, Yahweh, God Almighty, instructs Moses to make a tabernacle, and the tabernacle was the place uh, where God's, the worship of God was centered. It was a massive tent. It was the place where the laws of God were stored. It was the place where animals were sacrificed. It was the place where Israel was reminded of their sins, God's holiness, and God's extravagant grace. Most importantly, it was the only place on earth where God promised to manifest his presence. Yes, God is omnipresent, but God promised to manifest his presence in the Holy of Holies in the middle of this tent called the tabernacle. This was the very center of the life of Israel. And then in roughly 1000 BC, um, Solomon builds this spectacular temple to permanently house the tabernacle. So the temple becomes the tabernacle. And the temple was also the place, the only place where God promised to manifest his presence. And God could do that because of all the sacrifices that happened, removing sin and enabling sinful people to be in God's holy presence. This 
tabernacle slash temple was around for 1,500 years. That's a long time. And the entire nation of Israel's life revolved around this structure. It's hard for us to comprehend nowadays how important the temple was to Israel's life and worship and spirituality. In light of that, it's astonishing what John says in John 1.14. He writes, and the word Jesus became flesh, literal translation, and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ himself is the tabernacle. And then in John 2, 19 and 21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the true temple. He replaces the temple from the Old Testament. The temple was the place where God met with man. Jesus is the place where God meets with man. The temple was the place where God's laws were stored. Jesus Christ is the very fulfillment of the law of God. He obeyed them perfectly. The temple was the place where animals were sacrificed to atone for sins. Jesus Christ is the perfect and ultimate sacrifice. The Lamb of God who removes all of our sins. The temple was the center of Israel's worship. Jesus, the new temple, is the center of new covenant worship. Jesus is the temple. He's the sacrifice inside the temple. And he's the very place where God meets with man. He is the center of worship. When Jesus was sacrificed on the cross as the perfect Lamb of God, he said, it is finished. Meaning, there is no longer a need for a physical temple. There is no longer a need to pay for animals to sacrifice. There's no longer a need to pay the temple tax. No longer a need to rely on a priest to go into the Holy of Holies once a year and atone for your sins. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary and his life and his death and his resurrection to bring you into God's very presence. Which means there is nothing more for us to do. Nothing, Dave? Nothing. Nothing. How do we get into God's presence? Reading our Bibles, praying, going to church, giving our money away? No. All we do is we look to Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, the true temple, the one who ushers us in to God's very presence. And by the way, the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22 is described as a temple, and the entire thing is the holy of holies. When we're in heaven, all of us will be in God's presence all the time. And Psalm 1611 says, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy.
Jesus Christ is the temple. Is Jesus Christ your true place of worship? Jesus' identity makes him the place of true worship. In addition, Jesus' resurrection makes him the arbitrator of true worship. So his identity makes him the place of true worship, and his resurrection makes him the arbitrator of true worship. John 2, 18 and following. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? The the, the religious leaders are basically saying, Jesus, you're making some pretty strong claims. You're saying all kinds of offensive things, and you're cracking that whip, and you're getting violent. What gives you the right to do all these things? What gives you the right to tell us how we're supposed to worship? Jesus, show us a sign. The Gospel of John, by the way, is the book of signs, and the seventh and final sign in John is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And Jesus plays with that theme here. Jesus says, okay, you want a sign? Here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and he's referring there to his body, and I'll raise it up in three days. And they say, Jesus, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. This temple was an incredible structure. And in 20 BC, as I mentioned earlier, King Herod began a massive remodel and expansion project of the temple. So in that, the, the, the actual temple part itself took about 10 years, but the, the, the entire structure was still under construction when Jesus walked the earth in 30 AD. So it had been roughly 46 years. Uh, since, since Herod began that massive remodel and construction project. They're saying, Jesus, really? Three days? But they were clueless to what he was talking about. He was talking about the resurrection. He was talking about his own body. Here's the point. Jesus' life and his death and especially his resurrection give him the right to direct the Pharisees' worship, and everyone's worship for that matter. His resurrection proves that he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's the divine sovereign one, therefore he has the right to tell everyone how they're supposed to worship. Many people believe that Christians these days are narrow-minded, bigoted, and arrogant for making all these exclusive truth claims. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're wondering why Christians do that. It's a great question. I I get it. I get it. But have you ever wondered why it is that Christians make such exclusive truth claims? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, he proved that he was God. He proved that he was the temple. He proved that he had the right to tell us how to worship. And now, the resurrected and reigning king demands that everyone 
everywhere worship the triune God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he earned the right to say that by dying and rising from the grave. And of course, worship is more than singing on Sunday morning. Worship is all of life. So the risen king, Jesus Christ, is requiring that everyone who's alive on planet Earth right now worship him with every fiber of their being. And that means we must worship God with our time, with our money, with our careers, with our speech, with our bodies, with our entertainment choices, with our sexuality. We are required to worship God with every fiber of our being because he's the temple who rose from the grave. Does God care about our worship? Yes. God is zealous for our worship. How do we know? Jesus is angered by false worship. In addition, Jesus is essential for true worship. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we do not often share your zeal for worship. Father, we pray that we would build our lives around the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us Christ's passion for God-honoring worship. Jesus, thank you that you are the temple. You have made a way for us to be in God's very presence. You are the manifestation of God's very presence. You are the perfect sacrifice. Father, in light of that, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this week. And Lord, help us, help us to worship the true God and not a God crafted in our own image, in our own likeness. Help us to worship you as you have revealed yourself to us so clearly in Scripture as the lion and the lamb. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.